0: What foods inventors smuggled their products into a Miami hotel and bribed a cook to serve them to convention guests?
1: And what TV family lived at 698 Sycamore Road in San Pueblo, California? Answers to
0: those and other questions coming up in this half hour of The Off-Ramp with Bob and Marsha Smith. Welcome to the Off-Ramp, a chance to slow down, steer clear of crazy, take a side road to sanity, and get some perspective in life with fascinating facts and tantalizing trivia. Well, Marsha, what foods inventors smuggled their product into a Miami hotel? Apparently, they felt they needed to do that. They bribed cooks to serve them to convention guests. This is a food you've heard of. You may not have enjoyed. I don't know. You seem to have an aversion to this particular vegetable
1: potatoes And
0: what's the product?
1: Ah, uh, so, so, pot potatoes au gratin, tater tots. <laughs> Well, you know, I might eat a tater tot or two.
0: (laughs) These were brothers F. Nephi and Golden Grig. They mortgaged their Idaho corn and potato farms to buy a flash freezing factory on the border in Oregon because they knew that there was big money in French fries. But their machines that cut potatoes into fries, it produced a lot of starchy scraps. Yeah. So they decided to turn that waste into something that would be a secondary revenue stream for them. And with some new machines, they blanched them, smooshed the leftovers together, and created bite-sized bits they called tater tots. Now, the thing about the bribing, that's kind of interesting. They have their personal archive housed in the University of Utah's library, so this is tater tot history. (laughs) They trademarked that name, and they headed to the 1954 National Potato Convention, which was being held in Miami, of all places, <laughs> the Fountain Blue Hotel. So they wanted to introduce their small potatoes there, and they smuggled 15 pounds of tater tots into the hotel's kitchen and bribed the head chef to fry them and serve them at breakfast.
1: And were they a hit?
0: They were a big hit. Oh, good. So that's how tater tots were born. That goes all the way back to the 50s.
1: I've often <laughs> wondered how they were born, Bob. Now, that's awesome. Well, here. Uh, what TV family, Bob, lived at six ninety eight? sycamore road in san pueblo california
0: is that the wonder years family Ah, uh, no i could they think did of... live
1: in california though yeah, didn't they?
0: i think so in the suburbs no, somewhere
1: this, this is farther back
0: okay does this is this the leave it to beaver
1: no it's after that
0: after leave it to beaver but before <laughs> the wonder, wonder years <laughs> <laughs> Jeez.
1: now dive into your tv family history oh
0: my god what would that be i have no idea
1: well okay i'll tell you the Partridge family.
0: Oh, no kidding. That yeah. was their address, huh? Yes,
1: between They lived there between 1970 and 1974, before they were moved off the broadcast station. <laughs> but what, uh, did you ever watch that?
0: No, I never did.
1: No, me either. I think we're the wrong generation. Well, it was
0: just, we were a little older than that. It seemed like kid stuff to watch, you know?
1: And here's a little factoid on that. Shirley Jones and David Cassidy were the only ones in the whole show that actually sang all the rest of the family
0: just mimicked they mimed.
1: lip-synced and pretended to play their instruments so
0: I didn't know that. Yes, now you do. Well, I have another TV factor. This goes all the way back to uh, Lucille Ball. Mm -hmm. What did Philip Morris insist of Lucille Ball, even though this did not show up on the screen in the I Love Lucy series? This shows you how very powerful sponsors were back in the day. That she
1: had it when she had to smoke their cigarettes?
0: Well, she insisted she would not. Oh, dear. Philip Morris cigarettes. Oh, yeah, those were. They were not happy that Lucy's favorite brand was Chesterfield. Uh Uh-huh. But rather than forcing her to change, they insisted Lucy keep her Chesterfield fields in a philip morris pack (laughs) that's even though it was never shown on tv just in case it was ever seen in a photograph or something keep your cigarettes in a philip morris pack So was
1: that the compromise that that was the compromise she she agreed to that yes well it was a win-win it was that's funny yeah because she was iconic even then right and so everybody watched what she did and they didn't want their brand be smudged
0: that's correct
1: okay bob why was jello once considered a treat only for the rich upper classes.
0: Oh, no kidding. Yeah. Because gelatin was considered very expensive or something. It was un- an unusual treat. No, it wasn't expensive. Hard to make. That's it. Oh. Yeah, back in
1: medieval Europe. <laughs> that's going back a bit, right? Mm-hmm. Just creating gelatin involved a ridiculously long process and they were rarely served at the tables of everyday folks. Oh, no kidding. Yeah, unless you had staff, kitchen staff, you didn't have it, you didn't make it. So the kitchen staff used it for various things such as preserving meats and making jellies. So the gelatin status as a high class delicacy only lasted a few centuries. In 1845, Peter Cooper, an inventor who also designed the first American steam locomotive, you probably Oh know. yes, yes. Of course you do. He also invented a gelatin recipe that uh, you could make easily just by adding water. Uh, but he didn't really care about it much and he didn't do anything with it. And it wasn't until his creation was sold to a New York cough syrup manufacturer in 1897 They added fruit flavors and branded it with its Jell-O name. In 1897, it became Jell-O. And by the early 20th century, Bob, Jell-O ads promoted the dessert as a low-cost, high-society wonder.
0: (laughs) (laughs) You know, I I had something about that. I was going to ask you what wiggly dessert was first sold from horse-drawn wagons, and it was Jell-O. Okay. But, you know, three different times people tried to make money with it before it became successful. The trademark was sold three different times. Times. The last time it was sold for $35. Huh. In 1902, it was sold in packets that were stuffed by hand and sold from horse-drawn wagons. So you're right, it wasn't until like what, the, the Great 1900s, Depression? Yeah. yeah.
1: The Great Depression and World War II really made it a hit for cheap and... Uh,
0: Isn't that funny? So jealous started as a, only the rich could only, afford yeah, that.
1: Absolutely. So it was coveted. All right. What famous person's hat... Sold for $1.4 million in 2021.
0: (laughs) Wow. A famous hat. Yeah. How old was this hat? Does it go back hundreds of years or something?
1: Well, it goes back, yeah, it does.
0: It was a crown.
1: No, it was just a hat.
0: Just a hat. Yeah. Was it Abraham Lincoln's hat?
1: No. His stovepipe hat. That's actually in the Smithsonian.
0: Well, there are probably more than one. Probably. Okay. Okay. So what's the answer?
1: Oh, the answer. The chapeau of Napoleon Bonaparte. Oh, no kidding. Yeah. He wore that what's called a bicorn hat. It was cocked on two sides. Most uh, military guys wore a version of that. Anyway, he remained so identified with the style that uh, the one he is believed to have worn during his successful 1807 campaign sold for $1.4 million in September 2021. Wow. Okay. Why still you,
0: around interesting
1: what do you do with that
0: well it's, it's just a, it, yeah, something history. that was worn by somebody famous is worth more than
1: our hats yeah <laughs> yeah
0: <laughs> yeah say so, you know uh We recently were made grandparents, Uh and I was exchanging some texts with our daughter-in-law, Daria Solovieva, and she showed me something that just started coming to the house. It's called Nat Geo for Kids. Uh And she goes, there's some ideas for your podcast and a whole stump the parents section. Oh, really? I said, good. I'll spring some of these on Marsha for the next episode and credit Nat Geo and you. Be listening. She goes, Theo and I will be tuning in. (laughs) So now here's your chance to impress her with... your knowledge okay. of Br- animals. Bring it out. All right. Spiders taste and smell using organs on which body part? The head, the abdomen, the legs, or the eyes? Spiders taste and smell using organs on legs. which body part? You're right. Legs. Very good. Okay. How is a ghost shrimp like a ghost? It has a see-through body. It says boo. Boo. It it lives in graveyards or it swims through seashells.
1: A see through body.
0: Yes, you're very good. You got two of them Uh, right there. I have to impress Theo. Two of the three. Okay. All right. And then I'll ask you one more. All right. What's a tiny howler? I have no choice, no multiple choice. No, tiny howler. A
1: tiny howler. I'll say. You had a a
0: howler monkey question sometime back. This is called a tiny howler.
1: Is it a a small owl?
0: It's a small animal, but not an owl.
1: Is it a uh, is it a bird, a plane? No, is it a bird? No okay.
0: It's uh, a grasshopper mouse. Isn't that a strange uh, name? Uh,
1: really yes, I never heard of that.
0: Now it's five inches long. it hunts insects, lizards, birds, and other mice, even the Arizona scorpion. but here's why it's called a howler. When it wants to tell other rodents to stay away, it stands up on its hind legs, rears back its head and makes a high-pitched yell. Oh. which has been compared to the howl of a wolf. No kidding. Yeah, a tiny howler.
1: Well, I'll have to Google that. I want to hear that.
0: Those are some fun things Daria sent us from Nat Geo Kids, the October 22 edition. I I thought those were cute.
1: They are. And, Bob, who doesn't need a driver's license or a passport to travel in England? Got to be the queen. That's it. She was the only one that didn't need a driver's license, a driver's license plate, or a passport to travel
0: Although we knew she could drive Because she was oh, a mechanic yeah. Yeah, during she, World War II Yeah,
1: she did all sorts of stuff And she didn't need a passport either
0: I've got a question on England Okay How old is the oldest door in England And where can it be found? Oh, for God's sakes What do you mean, for God's sakes? I don't this know This is
1: important Yeah, <laughs> tell me where it is
0: It can be found where the, all that stuff took place During King Charles's coronation Where would that be? Is it Westminster Abbey? Westminster Abbey, yeah Yeah, there is a door there that's been there since uh, 1050 or something like that. I mean, the door's been around that long. They just recently dated it. It's only like six feet tall. It was nine feet tall. That's the oldest door. And it still works. I mean, they still use it. It can still open it up and everything. Oldest surviving door from 1050. That means that door was already 16 years old when William the Conqueror invaded England from France. They can even tell what part of England it came from, southeastern England because of the way they dated it. They call it the dendrochronology. You know, it deals with the rings and so forth. It's a scientific method of dating wooden objects now.
1: Very interesting. Very curious. <laughs> Speaking of the queen, how did she stun the world, Bob, in 2012 by doing what at the London Olympics
0: She ran the 500-yard dash, the 50-yard dash. I don't know.
1: And she did it carrying her purse.
0: (laughs) It was a relay race. That's right. For the lady-in-waiting, she handed the purse to her, and the race was on. And the race.
1: This is funny, because I went back to actually look at it. It was hilarious. Okay. She acted in a short video segment with Daniel Craig. Oh, that's right. In uh, his James James Bond. Bond role. It opened up the Olympics and there was a clip showing him picking her up at the palace and getting into a helicopter and they both skydived out of a <laughs> helicopter to go to the Olympics. Oh, that's hilarious. So they cut from the, you know, the stunt person going out of the helicopter to her sitting there with her husband <laughs> at the Olympics Back. in the same dress. It was very funny.
0: <laughs> oh, that's funny.
1: That's good. Uh huh. It was very cute. She
0: had a good sense of humor, didn't yes, she? Yes, she did.
1: Okay, is it time for a break?
0: I think it's far time for a break, yes. <laughs> okay, yeah. High time. It's I- high oh. time for a break, yes. Oh,
1: and that expression we got off of Indian matchmaker, <laughs> hilarious.
0: It's a great... Series well, On it, Netflix It's a reality show Yeah On Netflix About this Indian matchmaker Goes all the all over the world And matchmakes These young Modern Indian yeah. kids Who their parents Are insisting They need You need a matchmaker And, <laughs> and it's high time. Time. <laughs> high time You got married High time You got married
1: Oh very funny Thanks okay. to our
0: daughter Chelsea for turning us yes, On to that Yeah,
1: She came home And said Let's watch this And, uh, and we binged It's okay. fun But right. right
0: now We will take a pause <laughs> For a break here You're yeah. listening to The Off Ramp with, with Bob And Marsha Smith We're back! It's high time we got back! (laughs) (laughs) You're listening to The Off-Ramp with Bob and Marcia Smith. We do this for the Cedarburg Public Library, and it goes out on their internet radio station every week, and uh, we're on all kinds of podcast platforms. So, Marcia, what is the oldest piece of furniture in the United Kingdom that is still used for its original purpose? has to do with royalty.
1: A guillotine?
0: No, no. (laughs) No. The Uh, oldest piece uh, of furniture furniture. in the United Kingdom still used for its original purpose. It was just used... The throne? It's called the coronation chair. Yeah. And it's been used... For uh, almost 700 years at every coronation ceremony since 1309, and it was just used for King Charles III.
1: Oh, no kidding. So Charlie sat in it, huh?
0: Yeah, and they know that there are 27 kings and queens sat in that when they were crowned, including King Henry VIII and Elizabeth I, Elizabeth II, and King Charles III. Lots
1: of history there.
0: Do you ever heard of the Stone of Scone? (laughs) No. That's that's part of the chair. It is? Well, it was part of the chair originally.
1: It's not a scone for breakfast. No, no, it's not. That,
0: not, <laughs> not doesn't bring up those, yes, yummy, yummy, the okay. stone of scone. No, this was from the Scone Abbey in Ireland. And this oh. chair, there's a compartment underneath that chair, and that stone was originally put in there. This stone is just a weird thing. It goes back in Irish history to like 500 A.D. Why? One story concerns Fergus, the son of Urk, the king of Scots from 498 to 501. He supposedly stole it from the Irish and then... Urk? Yeah, yeah. And then England's King Edward I stole that stone in 1296 from the Scots and brought it down to Buckingham Palace. And it was there till 1996 when they finally returned it with the understanding, whenever there's a coronation, bring it back to London. And so it's, they brought it back...
1: And it's in it sits uh, in underneath the chair. chair. There's
0: like a compartment there well, for that, it.
1: There's so many weird things. It's a weird tradition. yeah, there are lots of weird traditions, so. and
0: here's one more thing I bet you didn't know about the coronation chair. I never heard of this. Th- this reminds you how violent the suffragette movement could be at one time, yeah. In 1914, on June 11th, suffragettes protesting for women's rights in Great Britain placed a small explosive device near the coronation chair and stone in oh Westminster God, Abbey, that... and the explosion caused visible damage to the chair.
1: Well, I would think. Oh, my God.
0: Isn't that amazing? Yeah,
1: they, well, women get cranky. Oh, yes, they don't, do don't when they mess don't get with with their us. rights. I get yeah. you. Give me the vote, baby. Okay. Okay, Bob. What town never existed but was shown on Google Maps?
0: Oh, really? <laughs> yeah. A town that never existed? Yeah. But it was shown on Google Maps.
1: Yeah.
0: Hmm. Okay, let's see. What would that be? Would that be uh, some... Famous town from a TV show or a movie or something like that? Bedford Falls, you know, from Jimmy Stewart and uh, It's a Wonderful Life, Bedford Falls. No? (laughs) Was that it? No? What
1: do you think? I'm just a setup for your voice catalog here? (laughs)
0: Mary, Mary. uh, You like the moon? I'll (laughs) answer the moon for you. (laughs) All right. Oh, sorry.
1: This English town, it was an English town called Argleton. A-R-G-L-E-T-O-N Okay It was on Google Maps until 2009 And although Google will never admit it It was something called a trap street It's a fictitious road by map makers To catch anyone copying their work Oh, no kidding So they put in England this fake town Only they didn't do a street, they did a town the reasoning is simple, as it is clever, because uh, if you made up something on your map and it was caught on another map, they're stealing your copyright Obviously, yes, Man, yes. Google yes. never admitted to that, but they say mistakes were made. And they, <laughs> they took it off in 2009. And it became a hilarious thing after that with people who knew about it. They had T-shirts that said funny things like uh, New York, London, Paris, Argleton. <laughs>
0: That's funny. Yeah. Okay, you know, we always like to talk about these longest, biggest, tallest, fattest, okay? Mm -hmm. What's the longest fence in the world? I'll give you some choices here.
1: Fence or wall?
0: What is the longest fence in the world, Marcia? (laughs) That's the question. You don't change the question. You get to answer it. Getting a little brusque. Let me give you the potential answers. All right. What is the longest fence in the world? The border between the U.S. and Mexico? The fence surrounding the Panama Canals? the Dog Fence of Australia, or the Great Wall of China? China? No. Really? You're wrong! Oh, I'm sorry. <laughs> that was
1: last week, I, for, I forgot. This week, I'm all
0: right. It's a 3,500-mile-long dog fence of Australia. They have a, <laughs> There's a dog, dog fence? Three f- <laughs> it Why? Was, it was built in 1885 to prevent wild dingo dogs from preying on sheep. <laughs> no. It's a six foot high chicken wire fence crosses the Australian desert, fencing off the country's southern half. The fence has done more than just keep dingoes out. It's created two very different landscapes with sand dunes mounting with vegetation on the southern side of the fence, while the dingo side is cast with smaller dunes and sparser vegetation. I'll be
1: Old dingo dog.
0: So the longest fence in the world is called the dog fence of Australia.
1: I'll be dinged. All
0: right. No, I'll be (laughs) dingoed. That's a good
1: one. I'll be dangled. What do these three foods have in common, Bob Smith? Salisbury steak, Cobb salad, and your favorite, graham crackers.
0: What do they have in common? Mm-hmm. All three of those things are mm-hmm. made by Nabisco. <laughs>
1: no.
0: No, I don't know what they would have in common. They're very different consistency. They are.
1: That's why I picked them.
0: Are they all from England, for instance?
1: Uh, I don't think so, no. Salisbury no.
0: steak? Okay. No. All right.
1: Okay. They're all named after the people who created them. Oh, of
0: course, yes.
1: Robert Cobb, a restaurateur in the mid 1900s, created the Cobb salad for a benefit dinner, and it was a big hit.
0: I did know that.
1: That's right. And um, Sylvester Graham was a 19th century advocate for clean living, kind of a dietary reformer. Right. And he was twice attacked by rogue butchers after he claimed meat was sexually arousing. Oh, dear. (laughs) Anywho, he created the graham cracker as a healthy alternative to mass-produced bread. Yes. Sylvester Graham. And that takes us to Salisbury Steak.
0: Who invented Salisbury Steak?
1: It was Dr. James Henry Salisbury. He was an early dietician in the mid-1800s, and uh, he had the idea that soldiers needed more protein and came up with an invention he called a Salisbury Steak. Ground beef looking like a steak patty, covering it with gravy and some potatoes, and uh, he fixed their diet tremendously by hmm. creating the Salisbury Steak.
0: Okay. I, mean, I used to eat a lot of those when I was younger. I remember yeah, that.
1: when I met you, that was your big thing. It was
0: not my big thing. It was your
1: big thing. It was
0: not my big thing <laughs> when you met me. Marcia thinks that she's just uh, introduced me to all the world's great food after my hamburger well, passed.
1: it's my cooking ability and possibly your world travel helped.
0: Yeah, that did Improve help. that. <laughs> okay. Back to the Nat Geo questions for kids. One right, more. Good. One more, Marsha. One right. more. Okay. In which country are black cats traditionally considered lucky? Mm-hmm. Mm -hmm. The United States, Mm -hmm. India, Mm -hmm. Spain, Mm -hmm. or Japan?
1: Mm -hmm. I'll say Japan.
0: You're right. All right. Japan is where black cats are traditionally considered lucky. Well, you've uh, you've done pretty well on those. And it's interesting because that's from a Stump Your Parents sections of the well, Nat Geo for Kids magazine. Yeah. And it says, if your parents can't answer these questions, maybe they should go to school instead of you. Oh. <laughs> <laughs> so you, you well, your grandmother, well, you, you well. answered those. That's
1: right. Granny wins again. Again, okay. Nat
0: Geo for Kids, great magazine.
1: Yes. Here's a word origin for you. Why do we call a traitor a turncoat?
0: Oh, why do we call it traitor? Probably because um, the first traitor, a traitor is a person who changed the uniforms, maybe, in a, in war, for instance. Mm-hmm. Is that what it was? No. That seems to make it's, sense. It's
1: close to the answer, yeah. So it,
0: did they change their coats in a uh, diplomatic sense or a legal it, sense or it, law? Yeah,
1: and it wasn't a soldier. Here's the story. Okay. Apparently, a former Duke of Saxony found himself and his land uncomfortably situated between the middle of a war between the French and the Saxons so he had a reversible coat made (laughs) one side was blue for the Saxon and the other side was white for the French and depending on who was currently occupying his land he wore the appropriate color it's funny so it's uh, along the lines of what you said so he
0: he turned the coat he did a different coat yeah depending
1: on who was taking over his land
0: that's pretty funny it is Okay, I have a question for you. Yes, sir. This is about a famous movie mm-hmm. and a famous movie star. Who did Catherine Hepburn model her character of Rosie after in the movie The African Queen? You know, she was the righteous woman sitting in the boat and everything. And Catherine Hepburn? Yeah, Catherine Hepburn. Who, who did, did she, she model, model her over? character after?
1: Was it a queen?
0: No, but it was a current personality at the at time. At the
1: time? Oh, gosh. Uh
0: and it was at the was suggestion it? of director John Huston. He suggested was this. Was it an actress? No. Okay, tell me. John Huston suggested she mold her oh, character wait. on...
1: Wait, was it Eleanor Roosevelt? Eleanor Roosevelt, yes. <laughs> I was trying to think of how she acted yes. in that. Yes,
0: of course that movie came out uh, in 1952, so Rose Eleanor was still very prominent. and uh-huh. she I think she was in the United Nations at that point. She was... Named our ambassador to the United Nations. So yeah, Eleanor Roosevelt, who is the uh, wife of Franklin Roosevelt, and very famous for going around the country and a lot of a lot of activism. Yeah. So they, he said, why don't you model it like Franklin, like Eleanor Roosevelt, and Excellent. that's what she did.
1: Because uh, while uh, we, you were talking, I pictured I pictured Eleanor Roosevelt in my mind, and she had that uh, certain gusto about her in that movie. Yeah. And uh, certainly Eleanor had that. And you
0: got it. I, I did. One more question. Sure. Who was Joan Crawford's stunt double in the 1920s in the movie The Taxi Riot Dancer? This is just because it's such a weird thing. Now, Joan Crawford, of course, very big star in the 50s and 40s.
1: wasn't Betty Davis. No, <laughs>
0: it wasn't even a woman, her no. stunt double. Oh, who was it? It was Lou Costello. Bud Abbott. No. It, it was Lou Costello. Are uh, you kidding of me? Abbott and Costello, yeah. How
1: weird is that? Well,
0: yeah, apparently what they had in common was broad shoulders. And at a distance, he looked enough like her to be your stunt oh, double. That's funny. Yeah. Yeah, that is bizarre. I don't know. I'm sure that uh, Joan never wanted that to be known. No. I
1: don't, keep that on the down low. Okay. <laughs> Bob, the oldest person to visit both the North Pole and South Pole by the time he was 86 was who?
0: By the time he was 86. Uh-huh. This is a famous person, I believe, yes, isn't it? Yes, it
1: is. He's still alive.
0: Okay, it's Buzz Aldrin. That Yes, I read about this. That's,
1: uh, that's right. That's he,
0: pretty cool.
1: Yes. Well, we talked about Buzz on uh, some other thing, and we kind of mentioned he still was an adventurer. Yes. And today he's 93, or, or in 2022, he's still alive and 93 years old. And according to the Guinness Book of Records, he set foot on the moon in 2016, and at 86, he reached the South Pole. He went to the North Pole in 1998 on a Russian nuclear icebreaker.
0: (laughs) Wow, that's interesting. He's always
1: been the adventurer.
0: Okay, Marsha, if you wanted to go to the oldest brewery in the United States, Ah. where would you go? And I'll give you choices. Boston, Massachusetts, Pottsville, Pennsylvania, Wall Street, New York, or St. Augustine, Florida. Really? Yeah. It's Now, this is a brewery. It was founded in 1829. It's still operating. I don't
1: know why. San Agus Augustine is the oldest town, but I'm going to go for Boston.
0: Boston. No, it's not. It's in Pottsville, Pennsylvania. Pottsville. Who would have known that? Not me. Yeah, founded in 1829 by German immigrant David Gottlieb Jungling. So it's the oldest and largest entirely American-owned brewery. But it also distributes to 14 states, so it's the fourth largest beer distributor in the country. Huh. Who knew that? Not me.
1: No. Never heard of it. Yeah. What's the highest number of times a stone skipping on water was recorded?
0: Hmm. Yeah. I always think if it can go five times, it's going yeah. a long What's way. What's your
1: record? Mine is three. I think
0: it's three to five, yeah. you know?
1: Yeah. Your dad liked to do oh, that. Oh yeah, my
0: dad used to do that all the time. He yeah. did it with Chelsea and Benny. We'd yeah. show them how to skip stones yeah. across Lake Michigan. Yeah.
1: Yes. I don't know, Marsh. Uh, let's say uh, let's let's it, say 10. It was 88. What? The Guinness Book of World Records declares Kurt Steiner of the USA to have achieved the most consecutive skips on a stone on water, 88 times near Kane, Pennsylvania in 2013.
0: Wow. That's pretty cool.
1: 88 times.
0: Okay, one more question on Westminster Abbey. Okay, do you know how many people are buried there? You know, a we lot. always we were there. People like Chaucer, Rudyard Kipling, Charles Dickens—they're all buried there. So are uh, scientists like uh, Charles Darwin and Isaac Newton and Stephen Hawking. But all together, more than three thousand oh people. Oh my God, that's amazing.
1: That's a pretty big. Uh,
0: that's a pretty big lot. indoor cemetery there, yeah, isn't I'll it? Yeah, I'd say Ooh, spooky.
1: <laughs> I'm going to wrap it up with a quote from Mark Russell. Okay. The scientific theory I like best is that the rings of Saturn are composed entirely of lost airline luggage. (laughs) (laughs)
0: That's where they go. That's it. i got to go somewhere. I lost two of them there. (laughs) Gosh, yes. And then there's that place down south where they sell the lost luggage that's been abandoned, basically. All right. Well, we want to remind you that if you have any lost questions, you could send them to us by going to our website at theofframp.show and uh, give me a question to stump Marcia with, just like Daria did there. Daria and Theo listening today to those <laughs> Nat Geo questions. I'm Bob Smith. I'm Marsha Smith. Join us again next time when we return with more fascinating facts and tantalizing trivia here on The, the Off Ramp. Ramp. The Off-Ramp is produced in association with CPL Radio Online and the Cedarbrook Public Library, Cedarbrook, Wisconsin.